Let's pray together again. Father, we thank you for this text that is before us, for the remarkable way in which it traces human descent from Noah. And Lord, we pray that you would teach us from this text that all people are of one family. And we pray, Lord, that if we have lingering thoughts of somehow other people who are not like us being equal with us, Lord, we pray that you would abolish those thoughts from our, from our minds. We pray that you would drive out erroneous notions with your truth. And Lord, we also pray that you would show us in this text again what you made government to accomplish. And we pray that you would help us to think carefully and well about what you have determined should be the case among all peoples. So, Lord, we ask that the word, your word, your revelation, we ask that it would be the foundation for all of our thinking. We pray that the, the stream beds and the channels, the banks of the, of the river of your word, Lord, would be the banks within which we think. And we pray that you would help us to honor you in all of our attitudes, in all of our thought patterns, and with everything that we do. Lord, we pray that you would help us to live for the purposes for which you have made us. Help us to embrace our calling as human beings made in your image. And we ask that you do all this in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I would invite you again this morning to open to Genesis chapter 10. And we'll be looking at chapter 10, verse 1, through chapter 11, verse 9. And I've entitled this sermon, A Toledot and a Tower. And the reason for the word Toledot is because this is the Hebrew word that's rendered generations. And you can see there in Genesis 10, 1, these are the generations of the sons of Noah. So what we have in Genesis 10 is a genealogy. And then in chapter 11, verses 1 through 9, we have the story of the Tower of Babel. But before we get into uh, the passage before us today, um, I want to draw your attention back to Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. And you may recall that, that last week I was uh, discussing this passage and saying what the government's job is not and what the government's job is. And um, we're going to see this week in, in Genesis 11, 1 through 9, that it is not the government's job to try to build a tower into heaven and somehow gain access to the divine realm on behalf of its people. And last week, we saw that it's not the government's job to tell people, for instance, that they can only have one child. God has said, be fruitful and multiply. Nor is it the government's job to tell people what they should and should not eat. God has said, people are free to eat meat. It is the government's job, as Genesis 9, 6 puts it, when it says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. It is the government's job to pursue justice in response to murder. And I want to invite us all 
uh, to commit ourselves to pray that our government would commit itself to its job. We live in a state where our governor has vetoed an Infant Born Alive Protection Act. We live in a state where it is legal to, to, to murder babies in the womb. We live in a nation where we've, we, I, I trust you've seen this video that surfaced, where justice was not pursued in any form in response to this video. Meanwhile, our government has taken, up, taken it upon itself, which the government does not have the right to do this. It is not the government's job to do this, to say to people who were made to worship God, who were made to know God, who exist for God, it is not the government's job to tell those people, church and gathering for worship in obedience to the Lord Jesus is non-essential. That is not the government's job. So I want to invite us all to pray that we might have leaders and rulers who would seek justice. And I want to encourage you to pray that justice would be done particularly in Georgia. And with that, I also would urge you to pray that in the midst of what has taken place, the family of this young man, Ahmad Arbery, would know Jesus and find peace with God through Christ. So let's pray for justice, and let's also pray for salvation. And now we turn to our text, the Toledot and a tower. Uh, let me draw your attention to the way that Genesis 10.1 says, these are the generations of the sons of Noah. And then you can see a similar statement in verse 32 of, of chapter 10. These are the clans of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies. There's another similar statement, which we'll look at the next time we're together in Genesis. In, in verse 10 of chapter 11, these are the generations of Shem. And if you want to note other places where you get similar statements in the book of Genesis, you can look at chapter 2, verse 4, chapter 5, verse 1, and chapter 6, verse 9. All of these places, you'll find a reference to the generations. So the book of Genesis, what, what Moses seems to be doing is he is tracking, the first of all, the, the whole human family descending from Adam. These are the generations of Adam in 5.1. And then he narrows down to Noah, and he tells us about the generations of Noah in 6.9. And now in 10.1, these are the generations of the sons of Noah. And what we see here is these are the survivors of the flood. So what we have in Genesis 10 is really a remarkable piece of literature from the ancient world that purports to track for us the origin of all the nations of the earth. Kenneth Matthews, in his commentary on the book of Genesis, says, there is no parallel to this table of nations in all of antiquity. In other words, in all the writings of the world, in all the documents that have come down to us from the ancient Near East, from everywhere else in the world, you will find no parallel account of how all the nations of the earth originated from this one man, Noah, who descended from Adam. And so what, what Moses provides for us here in the book of Genesis is an account of all the families of the earth. It's, it's really stupendous. It's, it's remarkable that we have this this accounting for all nations. 
And just a, a few uh, features of this before we get into it. What we have detailed here are 70 nations that descend from Noah and his sons. And there, there's a remarkable parallel between the way that there are 70 nations that descend from Noah and over in uh, Genesis chapter 6 verse 27 when Jacob and all of his descendants go down into Egypt there's an accounting made of all the children of Israel and there are 70 children of Israel that is Jacob who descend into Egypt so there's 70 nations that descend from Noah and then there are 70 children that go into to uh, Egypt and that seems to explain a statement in Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 8 where Moses writes when the most high gave to the nations their inheritance he divided mankind he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God so in Deuteronomy 32 verse 8 Moses seems to say that the Lord appointed that there would be 70 nations that would descend from the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and that this would correspond to the number of the sons of Israel who would descend into Egypt. Uh, in this set of 70 nations, we do have prominent uh, lists of seven. For instance, uh, Japheth has exactly 14 descendants enumerated. That's two sets of seven. And then there are 30 descendants of Ham, but within those descendants, you have two different sets of seven. And then there are 26 uh, descendants of Shem. And so all that adds up to 70. So this is a carefully arranged and uh, carefully structured presentation of the nations of the earth. Uh, Genesis 10.1 says, These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, as we go through the, the, the genealogy here, the order that was just presented, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, is going to be reversed, and we're going to go through the genealogy, first with the sons of Japheth in verses 2 through 5, and this, then the sons of Ham in verses 6 through 20, and then the sons of Shem in verses 21 through 31. So these are the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. Now, I'm just going to move quickly through these names, but I, as we go through, I do want to point out um, some interesting uh, features of, of this genealogy. So, uh, verse 2, the sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, and I just want to observe that over in the book of Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 38, there is this fellow named Gog of the land of Magog, and he is presented as this kind of final enemy who will come against the people of God. And we see that again over in the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 through 10, there's this final attack on the people of God led by Gog of the land of Magog. So just to point out here, Magog is where Gog is from, and that's a son of Japheth. So Gomer, Magog, Madai. That word Madai is probably where we get the word Medes. And those guys lived in a region that's now in Iran, modern-day Iran. So these folks that descend from Japheth, they, they are north of the land of Israel and then moving west. The next name there is Javan. And the name Javan, if, you, if we were looking at this together in Hebrew, we would see that you could easily pronounce this something like Yawan, which is kind of like Ion. And Ion, the Ionic peoples 
were an ancient tribe of Greeks. They were these, uh, these speakers of Ionic Greek. And so Javon is probably the father of uh, the Greek people. So you can see that we're moving north of Israel and then to the west uh, across the Mediterranean to where Greece is. And then we continue Tubal, Meshach, and Tiras, the sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz. Uh, maybe you've heard of Ashkenazi Jews. These are uh, people who are like from Eastern Europe. Eastern European Jews are referred to Ashkenazi Jews, and that's probably because they lived in the land of Ashkenaz. And then Rifath and Togarma, the sons of Javan, Elasha, Tarshish, Kittim, Doranim. From these, the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans, in their nations. So 2 through 5 tells us about the sons of Japheth. That brings us to the sons of Ham. Now before I start reading about Ham, I want to remind you that Noah, Noah's son Ham in Genesis 9 had shamed him, and Noah had pronounced a curse on the descendants of Ham through Canaan. So a lot of attention is going to be paid here to the sons of Ham, probably because the people of Israel at the time when Moses is putting this together are about to come up out of Egypt and come into the land of promise to visit God's justice on the descendants of Ham who are the Canaanites dwelling in the land of promise. So the sons of Ham, Cush, that's in Africa, Egypt, Put, and Canaan, Canaan being the land of promise. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Raema, and Sabteca. The sons of Rama, Sheba, and Dedan. And then in verses 8 through 12, we're told about this one particular descendant of Cush. And this is very interesting because uh, if, you've, if you've studied uh, ancient history or ancient Africa, you know that the Cush, as my children learned to sing, the Cush mined gold along the Nile, the Nile Delta. And then there are more words that I've forgotten the song. Uh, but... Uh, the Cush were living along the Nile, but this guy Nimrod, he goes up into the Middle East. And so look at what we read about, about Nimrod in verse 8. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. And uh, this is probably not a compliment. Uh, Nimrod is a person who appears to be violent and proud, and he's going to start founding these cities. Verse 9 tells us, He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel. We're going to read about Babel in chapter 11. Babel is not a good place. Uh, and and the, the, So Nimrod is this man of violence, this self-exalting, uh, proud and arrogant and and a forceful man, and he founds this place that is going to try to force the gates of heaven. So the, the, uh, the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, verse 10, and then Erech, Akkad, and Kalna. And if you know anything about the ancient Near East, you know that these place names are among the most ancient places on record in human history. Uh, you read about ancient Uruk, and you read about... Um, Acadia, and you've, perhaps you've heard of the language of Akkadian. That was probably the language of this place, Akkad, here. And then we're told at the end of verse 10 there that this all took place in the land of Shinar. And that is the, the land between the rivers, the land between the Tigris River and the Euphrates River. So we're dealing with Mesopotamia, the land between the rivers. Verse 11, from that land, 
he went into Assyria and built Nineveh. So uh, it's interesting that the word that's rendered Babel here in verse 10 is the same word used to refer to the city of Babylon. And, and Babylon is Babel. And it's in the land of Shinar, as we'll read in the book of Daniel. And then he also, so this same guy founds uh, the city that becomes Babylon in the land of Shinar, and he founds the city of Nineveh, which is the capital city of the, of the nation of Assyria. And those two places, Babylon and Assyria, are going to give Israel a lot of trouble. The, the kingdom of Assyria will destroy the northern kingdom of Israel in 721 B.C., and then the kingdom of Babylon will destroy the southern kingdom in 586 B.C. Um, so from that land he went into Assyria, verse 11, and built Nineveh, Rehoboth-ir, Kalah, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kalah, that is, the great city. Now before we leave Nimrod, I just want to make an observation about him. Look at everything that he did. He was this mighty hunter before the Lord. He was the first to begin to be a mighty man before the Lord. But all indications are that though he descended from a son of Noah, and though through that son of Noah he would have had access to the knowledge of the living and true God, there is no indication that he worshipped the one true and living God. All the indications are that he lived for himself, and he is totally forgotten today. If I were not reading this passage to you, nobody among us would be thinking about Nimrod today. And nobody who doesn't read the Bible knows anything about Nimrod. Let me say that again. If you don't read the Bible, you don't know anything about Nimrod. The only way you know anything about Nimrod is if you read the Bible. Nimrod is totally and completely irrelevant, as will be everyone who refuses to worship the living and true God. The only way to attain lasting, true significance as a human being is to find your place among the worshipers of God. You can be the most famous man in the world. You can be the founder of the great cities of Babylon and Nineveh and these other places. I mean, this one place here that's called, that is the great city in verse 12, Kala. We don't even know where Kala is today. It is lost to human history. So my point here is, here's a point of application for you. If you want to be significant, if you want to have a lasting impact on humanity, you should live for God. That's the only way to achieve significance. And then we read about these other descendants of Ham. Egypt, verse 13, fathered Ludim, Anamim, Lehabim, Naphtuhim, Pathrusim, Kasluhim, from whom the Philistines came. Those are not good guys. They're going to give Israel problem across the Bible. And then in verse 15 and following, Canaan fathered Sidon. That's of Tyre and Sidon fame. His firstborn, and Heth. Heth is probably the father of the Hittites. And here I want to make an observation. Uh, the Hittites, they are Canaanites. They are under the curse of Noah. They are enemies of the people of God. But that doesn't mean that God can't save these people. 
because there's this guy that we're going to read about later in Israel's history, and awful things are going to happen to this guy. His name is Uriah the Hittite. And his name, Uriah, Uriah, means Yahweh is my light. So this guy, this Hittite, had evidently come to know the living and true God. This Hittite had evidently been drawn to the land of Israel and had sworn his life to protect the king from the line of David. Now, tragically, David betrayed Uriah the Hittite and had him murdered and took his wife. But nevertheless, God's, I think that the evidence indicates that God saved Uriah the Hittite. So I want to say this to you. Your descent does not determine your destiny. The people that you descend from do not determine what kind of person you are going to be, and they do not determine whether or not you will know the living and true God. And we continue here, verse 16, the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvidites, the Zimmerites, and the Hamathites. Afterward, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed. And the territory of the Canaanites extended. Now, the reason they're interested in the territory is because this is the land they're going to conquer. The territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Admah, and Zeboim, as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham. And now verse 20 is going to be a lot like verse 5. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. All those words in verse 20 also occurred in verse 5. So you get the sons of Japheth in verse 2 through 4, and then the sons of Ham, who are the Canaanites, in verses 6 through 20, and now the sons of Shem. To Shem, verse 21, also the father of all the children of Eber. This guy Eber uh, gives his name to the Hebrew people. And interestingly, the consonants that form the name Eber are also the consonants that form the word that's going to be used to describe the Passover. I wonder if you could put this canopy kind of over me just to keep the rain off my Bible. And Matt, you might want to put your guitar up. Starting to sprinkle here. Going to persevere. The Word of God is worth it. Amen? Um, Okay, so Shem, also the father of the children of Eber. And again, this is the word that gives rise to the word for Hebrew. And uh, interestingly, it's built on the word that's, that's used to refer to the Passover. So you could almost say that the Hebrew people are the people of the Passover. It's a very interesting uh, word connection. And then we read that um, Shem was the elder brother. Thank you, brothers. Look at these servants of God. Hallelujah. Uh, Shem, also the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, were born. Then the sons of Shem, Elam, Ashur, Arpachshud, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram, Uz, Hul, Gether, and Mash. Arpachshud fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided. Now I want to make a comment here about what we see here in verse 21 about these two sons of Eber, Peleg and Joktan. This genealogy here in Genesis chapter 10 is going to stay with Joktan, the, 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 one of the sons of uh, Eber. 
The genealogy in Genesis 11, however, is going to go from Shem through Eber, and then it's going to follow the line of Peleg, and it's going to take us down to Abram, Abraham. So uh, this is one of the features of the, of the book of Genesis. The book will often deal with the line that is, that is not the line through which the chosen seed comes first. So it will, it will tell you all about the genealogy of these people from whom the chosen one does not descend. And then it will give you the line of, of descent of the chosen one and focus in on the story of the chosen ones. That's a, a recurring feature of the book of Genesis. Uh, and also about this guy Peleg, we see in his days the earth was divided. And in, in the genealogy of Peleg in Genesis 11, um, we, we have, as we had in the genealogy in, in chapter 5, the ability to determine dates for these people. And I want to offer you my calculations, just broadly, about what these dates indicate. Uh, my calculations indicate that the flood, from, from the, the names and the numbers given to us in Genesis 5 and Genesis 11, it seems that the flood took place around 2500 B.C., and that this dividing of the earth, speaking of what happens in chapter 11, that happens uh, probably around 2300 B.C., so a hundred some years after the flood, in the days of Peleg, the event that's going to be described here in chapter 11 takes place. And then we read on about Joktan's uh, genealogy in verse 26 and following. Joktan fathered Almodad, Shelef, Hazarmaveth, Jerah, Hadaram, Uzal, Dikla, Obal, Abimael, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were sons of Joktan. The territory in which they lived extended from Mesha in the direction of Sephar to the hill country of the east. And then verse 31 is like verses 5 and verse 20. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies, in their nations. And from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. So the Bible is purporting to tell us about where all the peoples of the earth came from. And I want to emphasize this again. It emphasizes human unity. All people are the same kind of people because all people have the same ancestor. All human beings descend from Noah, and Noah descends from Adam. So all people of whatever nationality bear the image and likeness of the living God, giving to all humans dignity and worth. This is our teaching. This is, our, this is what the Word of God tells us. And that brings us to chapter 11, where we see the story of the Tower of Babel. Uh, this story is remarkable for its, its literary beauty and also for the sarcasm and the irony that is, that is at work in this passage. I don't know if you... If, I don't know if, if you're a person offended by sarcasm and irony, but the Bible actually uses these devices, and it uses these devices to mock human pride. 
So in this passage, we're going to see the way that all people in their unity rose up against the living God. And as a result, they were dispersed. So their unity results in dispersal. We're going to see the way that their goal of trying to build a tower with its top in the heavens is mocked by the way that God has to come down to see what they're doing. And then we're going to see the way that they try, they try to make a name for themselves. And the name that they get is Babel, which is a shameful word that is used to describe the way that their speech becomes Babel to one another. And they can't understand one another because of the way that God has confused their language. So they do get a name in the sense that they get a reputation. They get a reputation for being evil and for being under the judgment of God. Uh, Let's look together at, at Genesis chapter 11, verse 1 and following. Verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language. And I just want to draw your attention to verse 9, where we read that God dispersed them over the face of all the earth. And above that in verse 9, we read of the language of all the earth. So there are going to be these matching statements uh, from verse 1 to verse 9 and then working down through the passage. The whole earth, verse 1, had one language and the same words. So everybody spoke the same language until about 2300 B.C., according to Genesis chapter 11. And as people migrated from the east, that language should sound familiar to you because people moved from the east when they left the Garden of Eden. So Moses is, is wording things in Genesis 11, 1 to 9 to remind you of humanity's banishment from the garden. He's also going to remind us of the sin of Cain and his murder of Abel and, his, and Cain's banishment from the east. And he's also going to have features here that recall the flood narrative. So in Genesis 11, it's almost as though the sin in the garden, the sin against Abel by Cain, and then the sin that led to the flood is all being like gathered up together here and reiterated through the wording here in Genesis 11, 1 through 9. Verse 2, as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, that's Nimrod's place, and settled there. Now already the fact that they settled there is an indication that they're not doing what God has commanded them to do, which is to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God wants all the land filled with people, and they're coming together and settling in one place. And this is going to be increased and augmented as we go through the passage. Verse 3, they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. Now it's interesting, they say, come let us make bricks, and the Lord is going to say, down in verse 7, Come, let us go down there and confuse their language. And in Hebrew, the the words, let us make bricks, and the words, let us confuse, as in confuse their language, are built from the same letters. So there's a word play on the making of the bricks and the confusion of the language. And obviously, it's, it's worded the same way in both places. Come, let us, and come, let us. So they want to break, make bricks and burn them thoroughly, and they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Uh, that's probably a way of telling these people who have come out of Egypt, and, and they've been building uh, pyramids and things as slaves in Egypt, 
and they're going to go into the land of Canaan where they're going to build out of stone. Uh, this is Moses telling his people what building materials were used over there in the land of Shinar between the rivers. Uh, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, verse 4, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves. And in this next phrase, we see their rebellion against the living God. Lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And all the people get together with their one language and they say, let's make it where we don't have to do what God has told us to do. Let's build this tower with its top into heaven, lest we be dispersed over the whole earth. And now here's a point of application for us as human beings. As created human beings, we don't get to decide what our ultimate purpose is. We are created for God. And God, who created us, has given us our purpose. And if we choose to rebel against that purpose, which God, I, I would argue, as I've, as I've tried to explain as we've been in Genesis, I would argue that God's saying, be fruitful and multiply, is Him saying, I want you who bear my image, who represent my character, to multiply so that there are more representations of my character, so that my glory fills the earth. Those who reject that as their ultimate purpose, they will find that they are forced to comply with what God has created them to do. So the question for us is not whether we will accomplish God's purpose, but whether we will do so willingly or unwillingly. One way or another, God will accomplish His purpose. And if you, if you become someone who recognizes, and, and I would urge you all to recognize these things. Number one, the government can't save me. The, these people have gotten together and unified, and there's probably a hierarchy, an organiz organizational structure, a government, and what they're trying to do is build a tower into heaven. They're trying to force the gates of heaven to, to force their way into the divine council. That's not what government's created to do. Government cannot save you. We need to recognize it is not the government's purpose to give us the gospel. Government cannot save us. Government cannot keep us alive. Government, government cannot protect us against the wrath of God. We need to recognize these things. We need to recognize we don't build, as human beings, our own access to God. God has reconciled the world to himself through the Lord Jesus. And what we must do is humble ourselves and bow the knee to King Jesus and trust him and trust God for salvation. That's the only way to be saved. So they're opposing the purpose of God in verse 4. And then look at verse 5. And Yahweh the Lord came down to see the city 
and the tower which the children of man had built. The way that this is worded, they're trying to build this tower. And they feel like they've gotten so high. And they're trying to put its top in the very heavens. But it's so low that God has to come down even to look at it. It, The Bible is not meaning to deny the omnipresence of God. God is everywhere. The Bible is speaking anthropomorphically in human terms, describing God in human terms, to get across these points. In the words of Ken Matthews again, this is a tiny tower when you compare it with the scope of what God has made. And in, in comparison with the scope of God's plan, this is a puny little plan to try to get the top of this tower into the heavens. And in comparison with the, the immensity of who God is, these are pint-sized little people trying to accomplish this purpose. Far, far better to find your place in God's purposes as a human being. To say, if you're living in this day, God said to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That's what we're going to be about doing. We're going to live for God's glory. We're going to reflect His character. We're not going to try to build a name for ourselves. We're going to try to exalt the name of the living God. You pursue that, you will have lasting significance. You don't pursue that. Again, I'm going to quote uh, Ken Matthews here. Any culture such as Babel that defied the moral will of God will meet with the same end as the tower. If you set yourself up against the Lord and His Messiah, Psalm 2 is talking about you. And it says, the one who sits in the heavens laughs, and then he will rebuke them in his fury. So the Lord came down to see the city in verse 5, and verse verse 6, the Lord said, behold, they're one people, they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. Uh, don't, don't misread this and think, oh, God is scared of what my, a united humanity might accomplish. That's not the point. The point is they're going to do a lot of harm to themselves and to others. And so to prevent that harm that they might do to themselves and to one another, verse, verse 6 goes on, nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. So verse 7, come, let us go down there and confuse their language. So they're saying, come let us build, and God says, come let's go confuse. So that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Bible is giving us the origin of all the various human languages of the earth. And then verse 8 says, so the Lord dispersed them. And I just want to draw your attention back to verse 4, where they say, lest we be dispersed. But the Lord accomplishes His purpose. Verse 8, the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. You know, the Babylonians, they, they understood the meaning of their city, Babylon, to mean the gate of the gods. But that's not the Bible's account of the meaning of the name of their city. The Bible's account of the meaning of the name of their city is something like, oh yeah, they tried. They tried to make this the gate of the gods. They tried to build their tower into heaven. But Babel means confusion because God confused the languages when they attempted to force their way. Later in the book of Genesis, the Lord 
will reveal himself to Jacob. And when God reveals himself to Jacob, Jacob will say the words, surely this is the gate of heaven. You know what the gate of heaven is? The gate of heaven is made possible when the living God reveals himself. And the Lord Jesus said about that, about that situation where uh, Jacob saw this, probably what Jacob saw was something like the tower that the Babylonians were trying to build, an ancient Near Eastern ziggurat. And he saw the angels of God ascending and descending on the tower. And the Lord Jesus said in John chapter 1 to somebody who had come to him, he said, you will see angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man, on himself. So what Jesus is saying is, I'm the gate of heaven. And he says later in the book of John, he says, I am the door for the sheep. You must enter the sheepfold through me. So what the Babylonians are after is found in knowing the God who has revealed himself in Jesus, the Messiah. If you're here listening to the sound of my voice, whether you're here present this morning or you're watching this live stream or you're listening online in some, for, some form or fashion, I would urge you to seek to know the God who has revealed himself in the Lord Jesus. I would urge you to leave off hoping that the government's going to save you. There will be no tower built into heaven. I would urge you to leave off thinking that something other than the living God can keep you alive. I would urge you to bow the knee to King Jesus and to recognize him as the only true Savior and Lord, the only one who would give his life that you might live. Verse 9 of Genesis 11 tells us, Therefore its name was called Babel, because God confused the languages, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. This passage tells us, it reinforces the message of Genesis, which is, people live for God's glory. This passage also stands as a warning against what people can come together and do when they don't try to live for God's glory. So brothers and sisters, I would suggest to you that this passage urges us to pray for our government. We, we want our government to do what God gives government's authority to do. And we want to pray that our government would recognize that people exist for God. Now, governments are made up of people, so we need elected officials to recognize these things. So I would urge you to pray for the salvation of our elected officials, and then pray that God so works in their hearts that they become people who are convicted in their souls that they must live out the truth of the Scriptures, that people exist for the glory of God. And amazingly, in this culture, we have the ability to vote. And so I would urge you to do your citizenly duty and to vote for people who will honor God, who will conduct themselves with wisdom that accords with the teaching of the Scriptures. We should also pray that the government would do, as I said at the beginning, what God has ordained governments to do, and that is to seek justice. And, you know, this is not the Garden of Eden. And as much as we may pray and as much as we may do our citizenly duty, there is never going to be complete justice until Jesus reigns over this world. Jesus is coming back. 
and he will raise the dead, and he will institute justice. And yet that doesn't mean we don't have comfort. Look at the comfort that, that is articulated in Genesis chapter 9, verse 5, where the Lord says, God himself says, for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man, from his fellow man, from his brother, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. God is a God of justice, and God is going to do justice. Let's pray together. Father, we want to be people who honor you. We want to be people who live for the glory of Christ. So, Lord, I pray that you would make the commandments of the Lord Jesus paramount in our hearts. I pray that you would make us people who are committed to the making of disciples of all nations. Lord, we praise you that the gospel has gone to all nations under heavens, and and we praise you, Lord, that John tells us in the book of Revelation that Christ has purchased people from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. So we know that there are people that belong to Jesus among all the nations of the earth. And Father, I pray that you would help us to support and send people to go to all those nations and all those ethnicities that Christ might be glorified. And Father, we ask that you would give us boldness in our day and courage and conviction so that if if the culture or the government wants to shame us to try to keep us from speaking the gospel we are not are not troubled by their attempts to define good and evil and lord i pray that you would give us boldness and courage and conviction to live for your glory to be people who seek your glory in everything that we do Lord, we thank you as Mike prayed for our mothers, and we pray that you would help us to honor you as we we give honor to whom honor is due. We love you, and we thank you for this passage, and we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.